Welcome to the Podium Podcast, where we bring together leaders from the worlds of sports, media and philanthropy to discuss the people and stories that change the world. At Podium Pictures, we make impact. We encourage you to visit PodiumPictures.com to learn more about our mission. Now, here's your host, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Brett Rapkin. Welcome to the Podium Podcast. Today we have Sean Zeppelin, a very special guest who is the Director of Behavior Health at Duke University. He's currently responsible for providing psychological services to athletes and staff in the Duke Athletics Department. Prior to coming to Duke, he led mental wellness initiatives at some of the country's biggest and most successful athletic programs, including Auburn, the University of Oklahoma, and the University of Denver. He is a licensed clinical psychologist and certified mental performance consultant with the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. If you want to hear how it's done at one of the best colleges and institutions in the country, here's your chance. Stay tuned for Sean Zeppelin from Duke. Sean, welcome to the Podium Podcast. Where do we find you today? Hanging out of my office here at Duke in Cameron Indoor Stadium, so it's not a bad place to have a, an office to, to see our athletes in. Yeah, do, you, do you still find yourself looking at the, the court in awe, or have you gotten, uh, gotten used to it? You know, it, it, there are, you know, I feel like I've done, I've been in athletics long enough that like there are, there are a few things that, you know, you can kind of geek out about, but there is something cool about walking into Cameron every day that, you know, it's it's been a weird year without with it being empty all year, but it, it, there's something there still is that historic cool factor to it. Walking in here, so give us a little overview of how did you get to where you're at today. Take us down down the road. Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Yeah, so I grew up in a very tiny town in in, in central Pennsylvania. Not many people have heard of it, Ashland, Pennsylvania. It's a it's a tiny little former coal mining town. So I grew up there. Ended up at Muhlenberg College, which is in Allentown, Pennsylvania, for undergrad. And from there, really didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I was a psych major, and I kind of thought I'd always end up back at grad school, but went and worked in minor league professional sports for a while, doing sales and marketing, and, you know, felt like sports was always going to be a continuum of, you know, I was an athlete growing up, and sports just felt like home, and made a decision after a couple of years that I wanted to go back to grad school and found a sports psych master's program at the University of Denver. I usually tell students it wasn't the best decision making necessarily. You know, they were they were in their first year, and I made a decision in February to go back to school, which is not time to make that. And but really, without researching it, just kind of jumped right in. It felt right. Sports psych. This is what I want to do, and got there. And, and you know, sometimes not the best decision making leads you to a really good place. Had no idea that the faculty there were first class, and stayed there. Did a doctorate in, in clinical psychology, and, and got to continue to get great mentorship from my professors there. And from there, kind of knew I wanted to work in college athletics, even though at the time it was a much smaller world than it is now of, of people that are doing full-time sports psych and counseling work in, in college athletic departments. From there, I went on to the University of Oklahoma, spent two years there working in their athletic department, and have since worked at Illinois State University, then Auburn University for a couple of years, and now been at Duke. This is going into year four here at Duke, so it's been an exciting journey to go through an exciting time as we've watched kind of mental health take off and the acceptance of mental health take off in, in college athletics and, and to kind of be kind of have a front row seat to that has been it's been encouraging and, and but a lot of work at times 
when you mentioned mental health taken off and specifically in college athletics, like what, is, what does that look like? How is, how has your job changed and, and what are you seeing different? You know, I, I think we've seen one, the growth. I mean, you know, a few years ago, the NCAA came out with their best practices and kind of sort of guidelines for, for mental health. And I think that was kind of the first step in kind of recognizing it as a major part of the athletic experience. With that, you saw a growth of, of providers in-house, which has led to the growth in, in student athletes kind of opening up and talking about what their experience is really like. You know, I don't know that, I mean, at times when I was younger, even when I was in grad school, you know, I'd tell people what I was studying to do and they'd be like, oh, they're athletes. What do they have to be stressed about? Like, you know, as if they're not people. And I think we've great, we've, we've found a greater understanding for what that experience is like, what the stress is that, you know, that student athletes go through. You know, I, I usually talk about it in the sense that, you know, they're, they're young adults first. So any, any stressors that come in the, the life of a young adult, like they experience and, you know, add in a college experience and the stress of classes and things like that, that adds a layer that impacts mental health. And then you take in the athletics piece of, you know, the pressures to perform. And, you know, some people think it's just a game, but to these athletes, it's often much more than that. So it, there's always a level to this. And I think it's been, it's something that's always been there, but to kind of get to this point where people are talking about it, coaches are talking about it, athletes are talking about it. I think we've come a long way and in, in not that long of time. Mm -hmm. In terms of the stigma, I mean, do you feel like with some of these athletes, whether it's Michael Phelps or Kevin Love or Naomi Osaka talking about it, are you seeing the the athletes becoming more comfortable and in walking into your office? Uh, 100%. I, I think, you know, it, it's every time you, you hear another story of, of people that, you know, are further along in their career, a little bit more accomplished, you know, it, 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 it makes it real for, for people, you know, or for, for college students. I mean, I think a lot of times for collegiate student athletes, this is the first time they've really had exposure to it, or maybe really even thought about it themselves. And there can be that moment of like, well, what's wrong with me? But when you see these people that are at the level they're, they're aspiring to be at, I think it does absolutely make a difference in like, okay, if they can talk about it, I can. So what's the process? I mean, if I'm on, if I'm on the basketball team or the lacrosse team at Duke and, you know, I'm feeling depressed or anxious or what have you. Well, first of all, what are some of the, the issues that you're seeing today? I mean, I think we see very similar issues to what you'll see in, in a typical young adult population. So, I mean, anxiety is, is number one. I mean, and after the year we've been through, if there's a, if there's a ton of people out there that will still say they've never experienced anxiety, I'm not so sure that's accurate after the last year. I mean, just this idea of uncertainty and lack of control over our environment can really just add to an increase in anxiety. We see depression, body image issues, eating disorders, you know, but I think on a smaller level and maybe the things that we don't always see, like, you know, pretty prevalent in the young adult population is just adjustment disorders, moving into different phases of your life and, you know, college students, you're moving away from home for the first time. You're in a new environment. For a lot of these college students, it's, you got to make friends for the first time since you were five years old. Like sometimes I ask them, like, how'd you make your friends you had in college, like high school? Like no one knows because it just happened. And then you get to college and you have to think about it. Like it, it's a different experience. So I think those are the typical things that we see. And, and with college athletes, it's, it's when it gets to that clinical stuff, it's really not all that different from regular students. Mm -hmm. Now you add on top of that, the performance piece, the, you know, 
we've especially in power five conferences that you know every almost every sporting event not every but almost every is somehow available streaming or on tv and you know that adds a layer to like performing in front of crowds like they've never performed in before i think you know even even your olympic sports are now available for you know i guess technically the world to see and so i think that adds an element of of pressure and that's that's just the external stuff every one of these athletes also has their own internal drive and pressure to perform and that creates some performance anxiety as well also these athletes and student athletes are I think made available because of social media. And I know, you know, every once in a while I'll get somebody random who will say something weird on, on my social media and I have like five followers. How do you advise the, the student athletes to, are there any best practices around social media? You know, the best practice I, I tell them is to delete it, especially in season. Now I, I, I rarely get people to take me up on it, but I will say I've had a number of student athletes take me up on it and, and, very few, I'm trying to remember if any, have, have come back and said that they didn't have a better experience not paying attention to it. You know, I think what we've done is we've taken, you know, the experience that's always been there for your bigger sports. You know, you you, you go to a, a college football game or a college basketball game and there's always fans that, you know, have said not great things. But we've now we've now made that easier to do. And we've now made that not just in a game where you can zone it out, but it it, it can hit you at any time. And, you know, I think what I tell our student athletes to, if you're not going to delete it, limit it, you know, and if you can anticipate that there's not going to be some great stuff on there, like maybe we don't go take a look at, at things after a game and, you know, and, and, and really trying to work them through just identifying the people whose opinions do matter to them and focusing on those a little bit more. It's where like helping them identify their actual support, not just, you know, the people that are following them when, when times are good and tearing them down when times are bad. And even worse, the people that doesn't matter how well you're doing are going to try to find something to say because they can now with social media. Yeah. And I think, I mean, social media is part of it, but the phones themselves, I mean, whether it's receiving email 24 hours a day or texts all the time, it, there, there, I, I think, the, sorry, ahead. yeah, yeah. There's, there's no downtime. Like the, you're always on, like, and there's always, there's a constant flow of information, which I think just... It just, you know, doesn't allow them time or any of us, to be frank, to just detach and, and kind of take care of ourselves, you know, for we're constantly on. And, you know, I, I think, again, this is outside of the college experience, but all college students definitely have their phones with them 24 seven and finding time to actually turn those things off and focus on what's in front of you, the people that are around you, rather than all the information that's flowing through your phone. Yeah. I was actually wondering the other day, I mean, with the way these phones have been designed, they constantly, you get these serotonin hits, whether you get a text or an email or a, a like on, on Twitter. It's just, I wonder if that constant hit of serotonin throughout the day is somehow creating some, um, you know, mental health issues, depression, because it's, it's certainly not natural. No, it's not. I mean, you know, and I, and I again, the college students will tell you this. I have friends that will tell you this. Like I, I, I do it at times. It's like, you know, you you're in the other room and you, you hear that text tone and it's like, how hard is it sometimes not to just go like running in there and, and check what it is like, or, you know, you see that little number next to the, to your mail on your phone. Like how, like, can you resist that? Like, I think we're always kind of like pulled to that. And, you know, I start sounding like the old guy that's like, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have to do that. Like, even when we had email, you literally had to log on to your computer and like check it. So we weren't, we didn't have that anticipatory feeling of like, 
is it good? Is it bad? When most of the time it's junk, but, but we still feel, we, we feel this sense to like respond to things and check it. And I'm not sure that that's always good. Well, there's this incredible curiosity. I mean, you hear that ding, you see that, you know, you got a new email and you wonder, is it my ex-girlfriend who finally realized that we were meant to be? Is it that deal I've been working on? It could be anything and it could be anybody anywhere in the world. You just don't know. And it's hard to it's hard to get over that curiosity factor for me. And and what it's done is it's taken us away from what's right in front of us. You know that you, you hear that ding, and you know you're having dinner with a friend, and all of a sudden you're more worried about that ding than that human connection in front of you. And you know it, it's it's drawn us away from that. You know, and I, I hear that sometimes from people of like you know without going down down the rabbit hole too much of like, you know, this generation or that generation. And I, and I think technology has impacted all of us. It, it has, you know, I think it's impacted younger generations more, but you know, that that same experience that we're talking about is very much real for our college students, but it's very much real for you and I as well. And, and I think helping people identify ways to stay present, you know, you hear a lot about mindfulness practices anymore and, and, it's not just a buzzword. It is a technique to, to really just stay focused on what matters and what's in front of you rather than, than, than getting distracted by these devices and, you know, the things that can wait. And sometimes that person in front of you can't. Sean, you've been at a number of different schools. How are things different at Duke? You know, I think that the, the stereotype that, that I think people think of, of, you know, of Duke sometimes with, I mean, it's not a stereotype, it's real, is that this is a, this is a high level academic institution. And that's not, you know, to say anything negative about any of the other places I've been, but, you know, it is when you, when you choose to come to a place like Duke as a student, you know, you, you know, that the pressure is on both sides, you know, that, and, you know, there's a unique factor of trying to perform at, you know, ACC championship, national championship caliber level, um, as well as trying to compete in a classroom with, with like, you know, the academic equivalent sometimes of, you know, the, the people that you're in class with are, are very, very high achieving as well. And, you know, athletes, you can't really take the competitive aspect out of it, you know, whether an academic environment is really, you know, supposed to be competitive or not, like athletes see it that way. And so, you know, you, you know, I hear athletes come in all the time. They're like, I, I, you know, I want to be an All-American and I want a 4.0. And it's like that level of, of what they want to do here is it's just going to add an extra layer of like, when do you have time for yourself if you need to be achieving? And don't get me wrong. I had athletes like that every place I've been. But I think when you bring it here and, and the vast majority of people are like that, they, there's a real pull to to have to be the best all the time at everything. And that's, there's something cool about that. And there's, there's also, it takes a toll at times. Mm -hmm. What do you advise uh, the athletes who have that, you know, perfectionism or, or, or the, the desire to achieve at that level? You know, I, I think uh, that word, right, we hear a lot perfectionism and, and it's really trying to shift them away from perfection and more towards like greatness, like in, in helping them redefine greatness. Like, you know, I'll talk to them sometimes like academically, like, you know, do you have to have a 4.0 or would it be like fine to graduate with, you know, a, a 3.8? And I got to be careful sometimes if I go too low on that, you know, I get down to three, six and people are like, no, that, that, that's a little low, but you know, when you really hit them with and helping them redefine what would be successful to you, you know, I think again, we, we have very high, high achievers here that like, that want that level of like, 
you know, but you know, if you, you were able to all American once while you're here and you graduate with three, eight, like, you know, would that be success? If you, you know, leave here and get a successful job, you know, it doesn't matter what your GPA was, you know, you know, helping them really define like, why are you here? What do you really want? Getting beyond these things that these predetermined 4.0 and have to be an all American or I'm a failure. Like that there's a helping them see that spectrum rather than just the one, you know, it's not just perfection or failure. There's a whole range that we can do here. Mm -hmm. And in terms of resources, I mean, I know you guys recently received a, a gift from Danny Katz and his family to help build things out. Where do you see the opportunity to improve programs and processes, not just at Duke, but at, at different colleges? Yeah, you know, I think it is, you know, we are still relatively new. You know, you look around, I mean, here at Duke, this will be year four for us. When you look at other athletic departments around the country, you know, you've got some places where the services have been around longer, but, you know, in terms of services that have been provided in an athletic department, psychology services are usually the youngest. So we are still, these are developing programs. And, you know, I think the first is having, you know, a staff, you know, if you look back, I was just in a meeting yesterday with, with some other psychologists and we were talking about, you know, it's not that long ago that if your athletic department had one provider, you were doing a good job. Now it's two, three, four, five providers because the demand is there. And I think, so that's, it's growing your staff. It's also diversifying your staff. I mean, you look at the, the things that we've faced in the last year, it's, you know, you can't just have, you know, one white male provider. You, you, you've got to have diversity amongst your staff because you've got diverse student athlete populations. I mean, I think some campuses, if not most campuses, you know, sometimes your student, your athletic department is one of the most diverse places on campus. And so you've got to be able to meet that demand and, and you know, where they come from. And so it, you've got to you've got to grow and develop the diversity of your staff and of your services. I think this last year was challenging in trying to provide, you know, kind of group level services or, you know, even team level stuff. You know, a lot of our stuff was virtual and it is not the ideal setting for, for doing anything related to, to counseling or sports psychology. But, you know, I think our student athletes and, and talking to colleagues around the country, I think, you know, they adapted, we adapted and we made things work. And I think, but moving in and moving forward is really, taking an assessment of each individual athletic department and understanding like where your student athletes at with this. I think one of the things we've done a really good job at Duke is, is starting to chip away at the stigma. I'll never say that we've gotten rid of it. I think it's always going to be there a little bit, but like we kind of had to do that first. We had to get people that were open to our services and, and really recognizing who we are and what we can help with. And, and once you get there, then you can kind of take it to that next level and start fitting that need and, really hearing from student athletes and from coaches, like, what do you guys want? Like, what, what can, what would be most helpful to you? But you gotta, you have to have a presence first and then, and, you know, like anything, it's about relationships. It's really about connecting to people and figuring out how we can best help them hit their goals. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the stigma, I think that, you know, so many student athletes or athletes in general seem to be concerned that if they, if they go and they sit down with someone like you, that, you know, first of all, it's going to look like they're damaged somehow. Mm -hmm. And, that it's, you know, it's going to hurt their standing within the team and everybody's, you know, competing for, for a spot. What are some of the best practices that the NCAAs instituted or, or at Duke as well to give the student athletes the confidence they can talk to someone like you without losing their job on the team? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things is, is really having kind of 
your coaches and your administration kind of bought in and talking about mental health. And I think that's something that I've been fortunate to have happen um, here, especially of, you know, having other people involved in the mental health conversation. If it's just, you know, saying that mental health is important, if it's just the psychologist, of course I tell people mental health is important. But when they start hearing that message of like, you know, that, it's it's okay to seek help from their coach or from their athletic director, from their administrators. Like you start to get that conversation going. But I think as you establish within a department, you start to see some of the other student athletes who were the early adopters, they start coming forward. We've we've had a student athlete group here that formed um, one of our women's lacrosse players started it actually last summer during the pandemic and it took off. You know, she was like, look, we gotta start talking about this as student athletes. We've got to change the narrative amongst ourselves and and that's driven the conversation. I think one of the things that we do here, and I know others do it at other institutions, is like we make mental health part of the process from the get-go. You know, as when our student athletes arrive for, you know, beginning of the season physicals, like we 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 do our mental health screeners on them. You know, when the NCAA recommends that you should be screening your men, you know, screening for mental health, and we do it in person right as they're going down the line and they're meeting with all the other doctors and, you know, they're meeting with nutrition and orthopedics. And they're also going to meet with our behavioral health staff because it's just, I think that sends the message from the get go that it's like, we do this, it's part of the routine, you know, and it starts to send a different message about, we don't wait till you're, you know, there's something wrong, you know, to go do it. Everybody's going to go through this process and it's, it's time intensive, but I think it makes a difference that they, they see us from the get go, just like they see, every other member of their support staff that there's not a stigma against. Last question. What's it been like for you to see this conversation of mental health, especially in sports, become so front and center? It's It's been really encouraging. And I, and I think, you know, especially after the last year that we went through, I, I, I think about, you know, how how much more mental health had an impact getting through the, the pandemic and and through this athletic year that I – I'm grateful that we started shifting the needle before because I think it would have made this last year that much more difficult if we hadn't made headway going into it. I mean, so it is, I think obviously it's been exciting to, to go through this journey and watch cultures change within athletic departments. And I've been fortunate to see that at, at a couple institutions of us really embracing mental health. And I'm grateful that we did because I don't know that we would have been able to get through this past year starting from where we were 10, 15 years ago. Good stuff. Well, Sean, thanks for the work you do and look forward to continuing to to hear more great stuff coming out of Duke and keep in touch. Appreciate you coming Uh, on the podcast. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Brett.